I want to take our Bibles this morning. We're going to turn to John chapter 6. And I could have really picked out so many passages about our subject matter today. Uh, all through the Bible, it talks about, over and over again, it talks about commitment. And whether it's Abraham committing to God, Moses committing to God, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, the prophets of the Old Testament. But we want to look at the disciples actually making a really verbal, heartfelt commitment to Jesus Christ. Now, when I mention that word, commitment, it strikes fear in the hearts of people so often. It really does. You know, we want to keep our options open. You know, the problem with commitment is that we really don't know what the future is all about. In fact, Jerry White said, the fear of commitment is an epidemic is epidemic proportion in the, in the Western world. Many view it as an ultimate prison. All right? I mean, you think about it for just a moment. People get married later. People having children later. People buy the concerts at the last, concert tickets at the last minute, right? You plan your vacations uh, maybe tentatively. You're just not sure where you're going to be. Why? Because the whole idea is in a commitment is, is you're looking at something in the future where people can count on you. But then we also recognize all the blessings of a commitment as well. The blessings of marriage. I mean, how can you count those blessings? How can you count the blessings of having children in, in your life? And you think, well, I, I just don't know what my, my future is going to hold, you know, and having children. Can I give them back? And the answer is no. I mean, if you give them back, you'll never have grandchildren, and that's what it's all about. You know, you just got to have that. But John Maxwell said this. He said, until I'm committed, there is a hesitancy, a chance to draw back. But the moment I definitely commit myself, then God moves also, and a whole stream of events erupt. All manner of unforeseen incidents, meetings, persons, material assistance, which I could never have dreamed would come my way, begin to flow toward me the moment I make a commitment. Now, the tradition of our church, and this has been going on for the last 25 or 26 years, we ask you to come uh, in, into a Sunday with it, wrong card, and uh, we ask you to make a commitment. And these are sitting at the end of your rows. We'll get those two in your hands in just a few moments. But the moment I pull this out, it's a faith step on your part in committing to the church financially for the coming year. And I know that I should have sprung this on you at the end, not at the beginning, but let me just say this. For um, a long time, as I grew up in church and Sunday school at least, I wasn't saved until I was 16, but right after that I started uh, trying to tithe. And I would commit myself in my mind, and I would think, well, when am I going to start? And I finally figured out maybe each year what, when, what week I was going to start, what, how I could see my way clear of doing that. And then I would always kind of wimp out during the year. In fact, when you look at my financial statement at the end of the year versus what I was making in the grocery store, they just wouldn't add up. Wouldn't add up to 10%. And so I was struggling with that, but I, at the same time, I wasn't feeling any kind of guilt or remorse over it. I mean, I felt like I was doing the best I could. Until one day, <clears throat> when I was sitting in my college church, Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Athens, Georgia, uh, it was their tradition to preach three sermons every year on stewardship and guidance in our finances, and at the end of the time, fill out one of these cards that looks something like this. And I remember having this thing in my hand and thought to myself, I need a starting point. I really do need, this is a God thing for me, I, I need a starting point. But I also need a commitment because the moment I fill out this card, I'm not going to play around with it anymore. I'm really going to tithe. Well, at the time, I was trying to work my way through college. Uh, my parents, God bless their heart, paycheck to paycheck, I was having to 
pay for my own college, and, um, and, and I didn't know how I was going to go to a transfer from the University of Georgia to a private college to learn to go into the ministry. But I said, Lord, my, my problem is you're not even involved in my finances. You're not even involved. I've got to get involved with you before you get involved in me, at least in this area of my life. Filled out the card. It was our custom where people would actually, we don't do this, but people would come to the altar, pray maybe, and drop their card off on the altar. And that was just the standard practice back in that church. Well, I did that that day. And, and this is my testimony, my story, not yours. Your story is going to be different, and it maybe is different already. But all kinds of blessings started coming my way. Uh, I stuck to it. I, I've never wavered after Pam and I got married. She was already a tither. We just kept going, and we've given above the tithe every single year of our marriage, even when we were in school and seminary. But I was going to Coal Falls College, private school, private tuition, and uh, I was, I was uh, a salesman, okay, during the summer, and I'd take some time off to sell more. And I was able to put myself through college, through a private school, and the only debt that I had, school debt, at the end of the year, end of the time, was $800. And the reason I had that, I started preaching toward the last year, and preaching doesn't pay anything, you know? And, uh, and so I was preaching instead of selling, and I had to borrow $800 right at the end just to pay that last part of it. Probably shouldn't have done that. Probably should have prayed about it. Maybe. I don't know. But it just seemed the easy way to go, and so I, I had $800 debt. So that's my story. God started pouring out blessings to me, and I didn't do it for that reason. I really didn't. I did it because I said, it's just about time that I give this area of my life to the Lord. So I say that knowing that whoever has really committed to tithing and actually followed through and doing it, it's never, I've never met the person that's really regretted it. But I want to talk to you about a commitment in general today and apply it to giving and understand that in John chapter 6, we see really commitment is always made in the atmosphere of struggle. Whatever your commitment is, it may be in the area of money and finances. It may be in the area of your life in general and giving your heart to Christ. It could be anything in your life, but that commitment is always made in the atmosphere of struggle. We read in John chapter 6 where Jesus had just performed a lot of miracles. Now he's teaching, and in his teaching, he's really declaring himself to be God. And so, we find in verse 60 of this chapter, it says, when many of the disciples heard it, and it's talking about disciples, just followers. That's what it meant. I mean, it wasn't the original 11 or 12, but rather it was just followers in general. They were following him. They were getting fed by the fish and the loaves, and, and they were seeing miracles being done. Now it says, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? They were offended by the word of God. They were offended. People, when they hear a message on money or tithing, they, they're offended sometimes by the word of God. There's others that at the same time, when they hear about Jesus Christ going to heaven by, the, by Jesus Christ and him dying on the cross, it's a bloody religion. Well, they're offended by that. They were offended that Jesus claimed to be God in the flesh, plus some other things as well. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. I'm about the Holy Spirit. The flesh, no help at all. It's no help in your salvation at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. They come from heaven. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those uh, were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, 
this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Now, this is the only verse in the Bible that talks in this way, but it's an important verse. Is no one can get, you just can't get saved any time. You have to want to. And you want to because the Holy Spirit is drawing you to the Father. And you're, you're granted, just like you're granted permission to repent if you so choose, you have to also be granted permission to come to him. And he says, and his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. There's many people, hundreds of people, maybe thousands of people at this time. They just turned their back and we just can't take it. This is just too much. So Jesus said to the 12, do you go away? Are you going to leave me also? I love what the King James Version says in that. Will you leave me also? And Simon Peter answered for the group, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Man, what a scripture. What a commitment that they've made. Now, I want to look at, at three things in this passage and some other verses in the Bible as well this morning, very quickly. I want to look at the what, I want to look at the who, and I want to look at the when. What are you going to commit to? We're going to review a little bit from last week. Who are you really committing to? And then when do you do it? Let's look at it. What about the what? Well, Peter and the disciples uh, remembered the miracles, the teachings, the love, the, per- the great attitude that Jesus had, the lifestyle and the heart. And they, they looked at all this. And who, who else has the words of eternal life? And then we see from the passage that Peter and the disciples decided, well, you are Lord and God. Well, in the last message we talked about last week, we talked about the fact that uh, there, was a, there was a steward who uh, really had cheated his boss and cheated everyone around him. And he said, and the, the account was made, you're going to have to give an account before the Lord. And so he came before, or rather to his master. So he came to his master and he thought to himself, man, before I go, I better, I better do something. I'm going to be fired and I don't have anywhere to go. And so in the parable, it's told that he went out and he asked somebody, he said, how much do you owe my master? And he said, well, I think, I think it was 100 barrels of oil. And he said, write 50. Cut it in half. To another guy, he said, how, many, how much uh, wheat do you owe? And he says, 100 bushels of wheat. He said, make it 80. And uh, surprisingly, the master complimented the guy. And he said, man, you are so shrewd. You are so smart because you're investing your money. And really, it was his money because he was the one cheating these people by exorbitant amount of, of uh, interest. He says, you're, you're sacrificing your part of the money in order to make friends so when you're fired, you've got some place, place to go. And Jesus said, you know, this guy's more shrewd than the people of God. Because if we're going to have things that are our own, it says, true riches in heaven, we've got to send it up ahead of time. How do you do that? Jesus said, you pour it in to the kingdom. You pour it into the people that are going there. Well, notice here what happens in this life. He says in verse 68, um, he says in verse 68, look down. He says, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. He was saying to him, Lord, you are Lord. You are Lord. Now, here's the thing you got to remember in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so when uh, the people were around the this time, a little bit before this, they were translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek so the common man could read it because that was the common language of the day. In fact, it's called Koine Greek or Common Greek. 
So they translated it from Hebrew to, uh, to Greek. And in that, they used the word kurios. Remember back the time when, uh, in fact, you read the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, God was called Elohim. That's a title for God. It means mighty God. But when Moses appeared before the burning bush, he asked, he said, who should I say Pharaoh who sent me? And God said, Yahweh sent you. I am. Yahweh is a personal name for God. So when they translated that word into Greek, they, they translated kurios, which means Lord. Now, the significance of that is this. This is the same word, kurios. Peter's saying, Lord, we know that you're Lord. You're, you're divine. They were, he was calling him God. We know that you are divine, so who else? In fact, this in the Greek says, you have the words of eternal life. It means only you have the words to eternal life. Only you. It's exclusive. Only you have the words to eternal life. You're God in the flesh. Well, we understand from last week's message that really stewardship is lordship. It's really giving the control center of our life over to God. Because we said a steward, like this man was in the parable last week, a steward or a manager is a manager of God's or someone else's household or income. And everything that he has, he manages, includes his investments. And that was the problem with that steward in last week's story. He was investing his master's goods, and he was investing them all wrong, and he was losing a lot of money. And so he was, he was wasting it, it says, squandering his wealth. And we find here in that in that parable, that stewardship is lordship, and a steward is a manager of another, God, another person's household or possessions, which is who we are. Listen to what God says in Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Everything we have belongs to God. As we said last week, everything that we own, everything that we have belongs to God. We are managers. That is, we're managers of his treasure. We're managers of the gospel message. Uh, our families. Our families are given to us as a stewardship. The Bible tells us that our talents are, are given to us. Our time is given to us as a stewardship of God. And when we stand before the judgment of God, the beam of judgment it's called in the Bible, the only thing we're going to give account of as a Christian is not our sin. That, that's, that, that's if our sin has never been covered by the blood of Jesus. If we've never become a Christian, we'll have to give an account of the great white throne judgment. But the Christian judgment, the beam of judgment, one question, what did you do with what I gave you to do with? That's the question. And so even in the afterlife, it's all about the stewardship of God. And so we look at this and we ask ourselves the question, how much? How much is God asking us to give as a floor? Now, if you were to ask me, well, how much time should I give to God? I don't know. Because it's not in the Bible. Okay, well, I don't know if I'm obeying God or not. Well, how much, how much uh, not only time, but how much uh, talent should I give God? I mean, God's given me certain talents to do things. How much talent should I give? Well, I don't know. I don't know how many hours you ought to work at the church or whatever, or minutes in some cases. You know? uh, I don't know. You say, well, how do I know that I'm obedient to God? Well, well, pastor, how much should I give? Well, God tells us. He does tell us the bottom line of obedience to the Lord. And it was founded way back in the Old Testament. It was uh, created at the time of Abraham, back in the book of Genesis. It was incorporated into the law. And then at the end of the Old Testament, it talks about it really more than any other time, maybe in the Old Testament. In the book of Malachi, about 
400 years, 450 years before John the Baptist would come on the scene in the New Testament and then Jesus after that, we find an, the, the nation of Israel being prosperous, much like America is today, Western world, prosperous, everything was going great, everything is wonderful. But God says, look, I've got something against you. I, you. You have my favor right now. They wouldn't soon after that, but you have my favor now. You have my blessing in your life now, but you're giving me the leftovers of your life. You know, the sheep that you're supposed to sacrifice to me, that's supposed to be perfect, pus in the eyes, diseased wool. Oh, you know, we can't use this, and we're going to burn it anyway as a sacrifice. We'll just give it to God. You're giving me the leftovers of your life. Then he comes in chapter 3, and he says this. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? They're very surprised in tithes and offerings, he says. Now, you've robbed me. Now, this is a, we've said last week, this is a violent word. It means to pillage. And it's a strange thing. That's why they were so surprised, and they, they recognized the fact they weren't tithing. They, they, you know, they could count out 10%, for crying out loud. But they recognize, but how are we pillaging your community? How are we pillaging you? Violent word. Because God created this world to be in harmony with him. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, it created the chasm between us and God. Now, our ministry, the nation of Israel's ministry, is to bring the rest of the world in harmony with God. How do we do that? Well, we take the gospel to the rest of the world. We train people up, then we take the gospel to the rest of the world in order to reconcile them to God and therefore harmonizing more and more of his world with him and with one another. And he says, what you're doing when you give money, you're plowing it back into the community of God. You're plowing it back into the world. And without that plowing of that, those resources back, the gospel is not preached in the world the way it could be, and therefore you're pillaging the community of God. That's what it says. And even this, what does it mean? The tithe is 10%. It's not 5% like I was doing as a, a teenager and a young college student. It means a 10th portion. And you say, well, man, that, that's an awful lot. Well, you know, if you were a sharecropper back in the times of the Western world when in the 1800s, and in fact, my grandfather on one of my sides, his grandfather was a sharecropper. That's what he did. And uh, he didn't own the land, but he worked the land and he took 50% of the profit. And the landowner took 50% of the profit as a payment for the land. That was sharecropping. Well, you know, you say, well, I'm a sharecropper with God. He owns it. I'm managing it. He owns the land. I'm the farmer. I'm doing it. And I'm splitting the profits with him. So that means 50-50, right? Well, it would be the sharecropper. If you're a financer, finance investor, as the man was back in the parable that I shared with you, just a, with you just a few moments ago, you would expect, I don't know, what, 10%, 15 20%, I don't, I don't know, whatever your deal was. You'd never think, wow, I get to keep 90%. The sharecropper, my grandfather would never think, you, you're going to let me keep 90% of the money, and I'm going to give you back 10 And so when you look at it in that way, maybe it's not that big. Or let me ask you another question. Suppose your salary were to decrease 10% tomorrow. Would you die? No. And so when we're looking at it, we're thinking, okay, God, what can I do to plow it back into the community? In the New Testament, it's, tithing's not mentioned much. But one time that it is mentioned, one of the times, he says, For you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and ruin every herb and neglect the justice of the love of God, 
uh, the first things you ought to have done, but not you've left off the second things. In other words, you're doing you're tithing as a legalism. Well, I've got to do this. You know, I've just got to you know take out the ten percent, and I've got to give it to the church or whatever. And you know, and, and you're not really doing it with a heart of love. To say, look, I'm going to do what I can, and that was the idea in the New Testament of generosity. The ten percent was the floor, and now I'm going to do what I can. Now, the 10% belongs, it says in the Bible, in Malachi, to the storehouse. Old Testament, that was the temple. and the New Testament, it is the church. And we're to distribute those funds, not only in the community, but all throughout the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. With that being said, with that being said, the Pharisees were doing what they needed to do, but God rebuked them because they didn't do it out of a heart of love. They, they just had to do it. Deuteronomy tells us the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your life. I didn't explain that last week. Let me explain it now. There's numerology in the Bible. Three is the number for God. Seven is the perfect number. You find the seven spirits in the book of Revelation. It means the, the perfect Holy Spirit. The number 10 is the number of completeness. And so every time I either write out a check or give online through Realm or whatever, I'm saying to God, Lord, every, every time I, we, we at least give the 10%, that, God, we are recognizing that every single thing belongs to you. Everything that I have belongs to you. And what is that for? To plow back in the community. What are we, what are we doing with that? Well, our mission statement says it all about teaching people to love and, and uh, to know and trust and follow Jesus. You say, well, look, you know, I, what I see in the budget, we're spending a lot of money right here on ourselves. Why are we doing that? I mean, we're, we're not having a lot of cookouts. Why are we doing that? Because it's the job of the church to equip the body of Jesus Christ. You've been to the movies before, and one of my favorite parts of movies, by the way, is the coming attractions. You know, I like, I like those. And I can see all the things I'm not going to go see and see some of the things I am going to go see. But they, they look at, man, some good scenes, some action scenes, some comical scenes, and, and they put forth maybe their best foot forward. And you've been window shopping before, maybe, where you've gone through and you've seen a store, and some of you ladies saw a dress on a mannequin, and you think, I, I'd like to see more of that. And you walk in the store. What is that? That's, that's window dressing for you. That's to get you into the store. Why do they show coming attractions? They want you to come back and watch the next movie. We are, we are, as a church of the body of Jesus Christ, the coming attraction to the rest of the world. You come. You come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. It doesn't stop there. You need to grow in the Lord. You need to know how to handle your problems. You need to know what to do in relationships and how to handle those problems. You need to know how to govern your temper. You need to know how to invest your, your life and your funds and, and, and help people and make a difference in people's lives. How are you going to know that? You're going to mature in Christ by growing in the Word of God and growing in practical growth in Jesus Christ. When you get out into the world, you become the, the attractional church. The attractional church where people will want to come to your church because they want to know what's going on with your life. And so, yes, we do spend a lot outside the church, but yes, we're very justified, as was in the temple times, of spending money on the inside as well. So who do you give to? Who are you really giving to? You're not really giving to the church. You're giving to the Lord's community that, and you're plowing that back into the community. It says here, Lord, it means God. Now, what, what is that all about? He's using the name of God. Well, the name 
is so important. They're so important. In fact, uh, some of you may be going to a restaurant sometime and you think, well, I can't get in this restaurant. I don't have a reservation. Not only that, but I, you know, it's a really high-end restaurant. I couldn't get a reservation. And so you go in and you say, well, uh, you know, Michael Jordan and I are going to be meeting for dinner tonight, you know, or I'm meeting Tiger Woods for dinner over here in maybe Jupiter or something. Oh, well, if Mr. Woods is coming, you come right on in. And so you're seated there. Well, they happen to know Tiger Woods. So what do they do? They call him up and said, do you know so-and-so? And I never heard of him. Guess what they're going to do with you? They're going to escort you out, probably in not so nice of a way. But you won't be eating there that night. But what did you do? You used somebody else's name for personal advantage. You took their name, as it were, in vain. When Exodus 20 says this, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Matthew 7 says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. We use names to open, people, open doors. We're using the name of Christ to open up the door of heaven to us. And it says, look, some of you are disciples, and it says, they, they heard a hard saying, and Jesus said, do you take offense at this? Are you, are you saying, really, God's not the Lord of your life? Have you just been saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. Hey, you know, uh, I'm a Christian too. You know, sign here on the dotted line. I mean, after all, I'm a Christian. You can trust me. You're a Christian. I can trust you. In fact, we can probably just do this deal on a handshake. Using the name of the Lord in a way that gains advantage for you, but it's just simply not true. But who is this God? The Bible says he is the radiance of his glory, the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Who is this Jesus? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and he, we have seen him in his glory, the glory as the only Son of the Father, from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Who are you given to? You're given, giving to God. And the purposes of God. And who is he? He's the one that you can trust. He's the one that, as that song says, never would let us down. Ever. So you're putting your faith and your trust in God. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, all-loving, full of grace and truth, sovereign of the universe. He's a giver. Do you see God as a taker? No, he's a giver. As David said in 1 Chronicles, when they took up all the money for the temple, he said, oh my goodness, God, that we would be so blessed to be able to give you back that which you have blessed us with. You gave it to us first. Now we're, we're privileged to give it back to you, or at least some of it, for this temple. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, um, who was a great preacher in England and a, and a Bible commentary Writer. In fact, he wrote a commentary on the book of Romans. Now, the book of Romans has about 16 chapters in it. Very, uh, it's kind of like a normal book, book, probably about like that in the Bible. And uh, he wrote this many volumes on it. Man, he knew more, more about Romans than Paul did, you know. 
But he, wrote, he was just a great writer, detailed in every little thing. But he was a medical student at one time, and he was studying to be a medical doctor, and his mentor was someone he really admired, really looked up to, and neither one was a believer. Well, his mentor's wife died, and he went to his home, and he found him just sitting in front of a fireplace. And he said, then for two hours, I watched this man stare into a fireplace without saying a word. And he said, then I realized the futility of everything that man does under the sun. And because of that, he gave his heart and life to Jesus Christ. Why? Because he wanted something that really counted. Here's the thing. Something's on the throne of your life. And that's what we're still talking about, isn't it? Who's on the throne of your life? D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, well, medicine was. No, or myself was. But I took that off and I put Jesus on the throne. The point is something's on the throne. And it could be money. It could be you're taking offense to money. It could be that you're not going to commit to serving God on a regular basis because you don't know what you want to do next week. That lack of commitment. That, oh, I don't know what the future holds, but here's the thing. Peter didn't either. But he knew, he knew who held the future. He didn't know that one day he would be martyred for his faith. He didn't know that Jesus would die on the cross. In fact, he didn't know he'd be resurrected on the third day. He didn't know the day of Pentecost would come where he would be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He didn't know that he, along with 10 other guys, would probably be the most influential people ever to live on the face of the earth. He didn't know any of that. He just said, only, hey, look, where else will we go? You are God. So where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And as we look at this, we understand that, that God is well able to get involved in our finances, involved in our time, involved in our talents, involved in anything, and we, win, we get favor with God. I've said this before. You know, I've, I've had decisions that I've had to make in life, and in those decisions, I've wondered, what should I do? And I know what I should do. But here's the choice. I can do my own thing and want that which I want in my life, or I can have the blessing of God in my life. But I, sometimes you can't have both. Sometimes you, you have to make that decision. C.T. Studd was a uh, great writer and statesman, great layperson. Um, I have a book or two in my library from him. F.B. Meyer, also in England, a pastor, his pastor, have some books by him as well, some old books. Back in the 19th century, they lived, in, and uh, F.B. Meyer was sort of envious, in a, in a nice way, over C.T. Studd's walk with God. I mean, this guy would get up early in the morning and spend a couple hours with God. It was just a beautiful thing. I mean, he, you could tell he was so in touch. People came to him for counseling. People came to him for prayer. And F.B. Meyer, his pastor, said, you know, I'm just wondering, what's the difference between you and I? You know, what, what's, the, what's the difference? He said, what's the secret to your walk with God? And he said, well, let me ask you something, Pastor. Is Jesus Christ Lord of your life? And F.B. Meyer thought for a moment. He said, yes, I know he is in a general sense, but maybe not in a particular sense. And he said, well, he needs to be in a particular sense. And F.B. Meyer told the story to F.B. Meyer. I mean, uh, C.T. Studd told the story. He said, when I received Jesus into my heart, if I, if I could just think about my life being a house for just a moment, 
I dedicated my whole house to the Lord. He became master of my house in a general sense. But then he needed to become a Lord, my Lord, in a particular sense, in those particular rooms. He said, I walk in the living room, and everything's cleaned up. Everything's great. It's very comfortable at, at my salvation. But then God says, now I want you to go to this closet, and I want you to open up that room in your life. He says, no, God. I said, no, God, not that, not that room. It's not a clean room. You don't want to know. I don't even want to face what's in that room. But he moved on his heart, and he kept pulling on his heart. And he said, finally, I opened up that door. I turned, pulled it open, and God began to clean out everything in that room of my life. And then the next key, and the next one, and the next one, and the next one. I said, even now, God's convicted me of new things, opened up new rooms in my life. And each time, I've got to give that area of my life over to the Lord if I want to have Jesus being my active Lord. Because the moment I say, nope, that's, that's it. That's, that's enough rooms. That's enough. He ceases to be the active Lord of my life. Now, what about you this morning? Are you saying, you may be saying, well, I'm saved, so I know that Jesus is my Lord in a general sense. Otherwise, I wouldn't be saved. But what about a particular sense? What about when he says to you, I want you to serve? And we have that once a year tradition in our church. Once a year, we have you sign up for a possibility of serving somewhere. Oh, I can't do that. I'm just, I, I'm just overcommitted. I don't know what's going to happen next week, next week. I don't want to have to be here every week. Is that your room that you haven't opened? Maybe it's money. Maybe you say, look, you know, I do what I can and, and all that. You know, we, we have over 50% of our people that tithe in this church. And the rest don't, don't give a whole lot at all, as I understand it. I don't know how much you give. And you say, well, he's just trying to raise the budget. No, really not. Budget's already been passed. As I said last week, my salary's already set. I'm not on commission here, okay? My salary's already done. You say, well, you met the budget last year. Haven't you met the budget at least every year for 25 years? Yeah, pretty much. If we missed it, we missed it by less than $10,000 a year or two during the recession. Then why do you do this? Because I, I want you to open up that door and have victory in your life, not have money on the throne, but have Jesus on the throne of your life. It's you. It's not me, it's you. And C.T. Studd had that kind of walk with God because every time God said, this is a new room you need to handle, he opened up the door, struggling. He struggled, just like we do. But he, in that struggle, he opened up the door. My last question is when? Very quickly, you do it now. Remember Daniel in the book of uh, Daniel chapter 6 when he was in the lion's den? Years before in chapter 1, it says, while he was young, he refused to be contaminated by the king's food. He made a decision while he was young. Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were involved in that too. Two chapters later in the book of Daniel, they, were caught themselves in a, they found themselves in a fiery furnace, but they'd already made their decision to follow Jesus. There's going to be temptations. There's going to be times in your life, just like it was with me as a young college student, well, I need the money for this this week. There needs to be a commitment made in advance. The Bible says here, they believed and have come to know he says that you are the son of God. There's so many people in the Bible that were called upon to do something great. And many of them did not. Oh, but so many of them did. 
He said, but I'm afraid. Psalm 56.3 says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in him. Dear friends, as we're giving, it's a freedom to us. It's a freedom against the tyranny of being having the money on the throne of our lives. But it's even more than that. It's saying, I'm investing. Instead of pillaging God's kingdom, I'm investing in it. I'm doing something for the kingdom that's really going to take hold because I'm investing in his church. But, the, but Satan and God are, are tussling, aren't they? Should I do it? Should I not do it? I know I should, but can I really do it? Maybe later, just like it was before you got saved. There was a, uh, there's a painting over in Europe, and it does exist, as I found out. And in this painting, it's a chess champion, or rather a, ch a chess player, chess game, going on between the devil and a young man. And the title, I think, is called Checkmate. And the idea is that the young man, and just looking at the painting, if you study it enough, you realize he is playing for his soul, and the devil's playing for his soul, the boy's soul as well. And the devil now has checkmate on him. Well, this connoisseur of art, happened to also be the chess champion of the world, went through the art gallery, saw this painting. And, of course, he was drawn to it because he was a chess champion. And he asked someone, he said, could you bring me a, a table, a chair, and a chess board? And they brought it to him for a couple of hours. He just studied the chess board, studied the painting, went back and forth, went back and forth, and saw the frightened look on this young man's face. And he jumped up after a couple of hours and he said, young man, it's not checkmate. You have one more move. Well, dear friend, you may feel like in your life right now, your back is to the door or back is to the wall. There's no door out. And you think to yourself, I'm out of moves. I just don't know what to do. Know that God is always having the last move in your life. In fact, you look down through history and you can see this tussle going back and forth. God created Adam and Eve. Satan tempted Adam and Eve and they fell. God killed an animal and gave them skins pointing to a future king, a savior. His blood was shed for us on the cross. But Satan came back and incited Cain to kill Abel. Then we look in the Old Testament and found out that Eve gave birth to Seth and the line of Jesus was once again born. Satan came back and had the world rebel against God. God chose Noah to build an ark. Satan chose Nimrod to build a tower to heaven to worship God in his own way. God confused the language of all the nations scattered. Abraham's the nation of Israel, and the line of Jesus was formed through Abraham. Satan captured Israel, Abraham's offspring, and put them in Egypt, which is a symbol of slavery to the world. God raised up Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go, and victory over Satan looked, looked like it was just there, but Satan came back and led Israel into sin over and over and over again, seven times just in the book of Judges alone. God sent Mary to us as a virgin and gave birth to Jesus Christ. Born that day in Bethlehem, Satan came back, and he thought he had solved the problem by killing Jesus on the cross. But then God, in his ultimate move, raised Jesus up from the dead three days later to give us the victory that we enjoy today. Now, yes, that was God's last move, right? No. His last move is going to be when he comes back again. But in between, in between, just a few weeks later, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
God came down in the form of the Holy Spirit and dwelt 120 believers and so was born the church of Jesus Christ and that is God's last move. We are God's last move before he comes back again. And he's given us the mandate. He's given us the commission. He's given us the privilege of being involved in plowing into the world our resources so we can reconcile this world to him. Would you join him in that? Is it worth joining him in that? Oh, it's so scary, but yet we choose between maybe what we want or what we think we need, and and we choose that or the favor. And getting God being involved in our finances. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.